This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to this episode on the Intellectual History Channel of the New Books Network. Today I'm joined by Dr. Carl Eric Fisher, who is Assistant Professor of Clinical Psychiatry at Columbia. This position is in the Division of Law, Ethics and Psychiatry, and he's joining me today to talk about his new book, The Urge, Our History of Addiction, out now by Penguin Press. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me, Thomas. It's good to be here. So... I mean, I've I've read this book and it was absolutely fascinating. Uh, It's not an area that I am uh, familiar with uh, in in terms of academic uh, literature, but I think what's great about the book is it's very accessible. Um, But before we get to that, I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about yourself. Sure thing. Well, uh, it's particularly relevant in the case of this book, because as you know, uh, the, the entire book project stemmed out of my understanding of addiction and my felt need to explore what we think we know about addiction, uh, because the, there's a long history of addiction in my family, and I experienced it myself when I was in medical training. So, a little more than ten years ago, I was graduating Columbia Medical School and going on to psychiatric training at also at Columbia, and in some respects, felt like I was uh, on a on a good path and working very hard in my scholarly work and clinical training and uh, doing well to some outside appearances. But then I was also really struggling with alcohol, primarily alcohol, and then later stimulants like Adderall and then cocaine. And uh, throughout my psychiatric training, there were a few moments where people tried to reach out to me and say, you know, clearly something is wrong. You need some help. Uh, But I had such a firm idea of addiction that I was defining myself in opposition to, uh, and I was just in basic denial. Uh, so I, uh, I took it to a really extreme point where, um, at, at one point while on vacation, I went on an alcohol and stimulant binge. And for the first time in my life experienced a manic episode, I became fully psychotic in the sense that I had delusions of spiritual warfare and completely out of touch with reality. And then in this precipitous way, had to go into addiction treatment. And there's a lot more we could talk about in, regarding that. But the the upshot is uh, I faced my own addiction and became comfortable with the notion that, you know, I was the type of person who really should not drink and uh, that this, this condition certainly applied for me, that I certainly qualified for addiction. And also, I was I was curious about the nature of addiction, and 
turn to medicine and science, which is tremendous, and I've learned a, a great deal from. Uh, and there, uh, there seemed to be something missing in some of the medical debates about addiction. Uh, and I, I kept on seeing these these trails of breadcrumbs leading back to the humanities, essentially. And as as someone who started off in neuroscience research and then later came to bioethics in my own scholarly work, I've always been attracted to philosophy and the humanities more broadly and feel like medicine can can benefit from integrating some of those fields and insights. So uh, when I when I saw these uh, scholars, psychologists, philosophers, and others um, continually making these tantalizing references to how, for example, sociology influenced uh, drug policy and that influenced our governing ideas about addiction, or how uh, psychologists, for example, drew upon ancient philosophy to to make sense of a, a, a more thorough conceptualization of addiction, I really felt like there was, there was more to learn uh, from, from all of those fields, uh, but especially history. Uh, and that's, that's what set me on this exploration, which was a, a long process. Again, you asked me about myself. It was a long process of personal exploration first and foremost, that it, it came out of a question that I still had in myself, of what exactly had gone wrong in me? Uh, the, the medical and the scientific models and theories were were useful but but sort of incomplete yeah I mean I think that's something that is it really makes the book outstanding is that it is a, a really nice weaving together of this personal um, account as well as your professional observations throughout your career um, but then combined with a historical and as you say philosophical and sociological and um, ethical and at also at times chronological uh, sort of understanding of um, not only how has addiction been imagined but what role addiction has been uh, playing or used um, in terms of this broader quite nebulous um, I mean, yeah, it, it, the, the book makes it very clear that this it's it, 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 uh, um, it's in all aspects of uh, life um, and many that we don't think about. And I mean, that's something that I realized myself uh, that that this is something that could be quite relevant to everybody that reads it. And not only is it interesting, but it's um, uh, it's, it's it's very uh, contemporarily relevant as a result. Um, as we as we as as the book talks about rates of incarceration and um, and epidemics in terms of medication. So with that in mind, yeah, I'm glad to hear you say that, Thomas, because I, you know, I think there's a way that addiction has been framed as if it's some sort of discreetly contained and extreme form of human suffering. And one of the big surprises of the book in terms of an intellectual history was seeing how that's a relatively recent development in the way people talk about and conceptualize mental health, uh, that um, this narrow conception of addiction as if it were the effect of a drug taking over or hijacking someone um, is no more than a century old. And uh, you know, certainly in the 19th century, and even more so in earlier periods of uh, discussions of these topics, there was a much broader and capacious understanding of addiction as something that exists in all of us and is really a, a universal uh, expression of um, certain vulnerabilities in self-control and uh, other related psychological phenomena. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's as I said, that's another thing that really um, comes across is is the length of this. I mean, uh, and the breadth. Um, the work talk, uh, tackles um, um, ish, uh, accounts from India, uh, China, ancient Greece. Um, so I was wondering if you just give us a little bit of a background on the early history and the earlier understandings of uh, addiction. Mm. Yeah, one one thing that has been useful for me is a framing of. Um the dance between concept and term in the, in the words of one sociologist I really respect, Robin Room is an Australian sociologist who's long worked on alcohol in particular, uh, that, um, we've had the term addiction in the English language for roughly 500 years. That's, that's the term. And so the term is relevant and the term influences the concept. But if we, if we look at the concept of addiction as some sort of powerlessness or a, a deficit or a, a problem in self-control, then that that is clearly present much earlier. So I, I trace back thinkers like Aristotle, Augustine of Hippo, uh, and certain other Eastern thinkers, including uh, Gautama Buddha, uh, in, in the way they thought about self-control in ways that are analogous to our modern conception of addiction. Uh, and when I looked at the, the personal histories and personal accounts of people who who struggled with addictive behaviors, I thought there were very clear examples. Not necessarily that addiction is something that exists outside of history. And I, you know, I certainly one thing I learned from historians is not to make the anachronistic error of assuming our present understanding of addiction maps neatly onto the past. But even that being said, I found examples of people like a, a person with clear gambling addiction from 1000 BC who is described in a hymn in the uh, Sanskrit Rig Veda, uh, someone who was uh, playing a dice, the, the, the sort of dicing gambling game that they did in those days was almost, almost totally different. It involved throwing nuts into a pit. And uh, this beautiful hymn that really evocatively describes uh, the, the push and pull of agency, where at points the person feels like they're in control, but only slightly burdened by their addiction. And other points that the dice are kind of leaping out of the pit and pulling him down into the pit. And uh, uh, the dice themselves acquire an agency that uh, start to uh, affect him. So there, there are examples like that that I think are really um, uh, striking and, and and quite clear when we, when we think about older models of addiction and um yeah, plenty of other examples that we could talk about. You know, there are ch- Chinese poets who who describe their fluctuating intentions and uh, their inability to sort of extend their will across time. Um, and then there there are plenty of other uh, ancient Greek and ancient Roman examples that are pretty well re- uh, described and might be more familiar to your listeners. People like uh, Mark Antony or Alexander the Great, who famously struggled with alcohol. I mean, I, and this this is another thing that comes through as well is that this. Uh, I mean, you mentioned it earlier. This changing attitude and uh, what is relatively uh, modern in terms of a sort of uh, a condemnation and a sort of uh, almost like a criminalizing of um, of this, where it's been mapping onto say personal flaws or uh, character issues or um, all of these sorts of things. Whereas I think in a lot of the older ones, it's a lot more human. Uh, this understanding and it's like it's a it's a facet of the, the character rather than a a deficiency. Yeah, I would agree with that. I, I think for me there was something that was quite soothing and um, 
evocative of compassion in recognizing this universal component of addiction. If, if addiction is something that's present in all of us and everyone has the capacity, uh, to, um, uh, commit themselves to a strong devotion that saps their will, uh, then it, it doesn't turn into so much of an us, them situation. Uh, you and I were talking about good drugs and bad drugs a little bit before the before we started recording. And that's a major theme of the book that, um, throughout history, but especially at certain charged moments, uh, people have been divided into good drugs and bad drugs, good drugs and bad drug users. And, uh, oftentimes that, that has nothing to do with addiction. It has nothing to do with the actual risks or dangers of drugs. Um, and in fact, addiction and the broader concept of drug harms is, is employed as a flexible co- concept, something that can be, um, something that can be deployed uh, in in a very compassionate way uh, toward the people we deem good drug users, and uh, deployed as a weapon against people we we term bad drug users, and uh, countless examples of that. But it, it goes back at least to uh, the early modern experience with tobacco when. Tobacco was first brought back uh, from North America after Columbus's expeditions. Uh, it was it was reserved as an elite and special, almost magical uh, medicine for the aristocracy. And then, as it became associated with uh, commoners and the lower classes, it, it was then termed barbarous and beastly and savage and and like a plague intolerable. Uh, so, I, you know, I think that. Um, one of the reasons I was interested in exploring those sorts of broader uh, sociological developments like drug epidemics and social responses to drug epidemics is is oftentimes in those responses to epidemics, we see the governing model of addiction uh, at play at that time. And also we see how the governing model of addiction is shaped by things that are not necessarily related to addiction that might have more to do with colonialism, oppression, domination uh and and class struggle and then and then we live with the the legacy and the stigma of those um negative associations they almost form the the prototype of the negative stereotypes of addiction um which we still live with today i mean uh building from that um i think one of the the sort of um the, the forms of addiction that we uh encounter most in in in, in daily life uh I would imagine most people are aware of it or I know someone who is struggling. Um, but also probably one of the one that's one of the most uh, morally and ethically, um, uh, shall we say, uh, assessed, whether via religious or social or, uh, or class-based things, is alcoholism. Uh, and this is something that changes uh, quite significantly in how it's understood, right? Um, especially from like the early modern era. Mm-hmm. Yeah, people recognize problems with habitual alcohol use quite early in um certainly you know the bulk of the the book although I do include cross-cultural observations the bulk of the book is about uh British and then later United States responses to addiction because in many ways um the United States in the 20th century was the major uh promulgator of ideas about addiction uh in the in the sort of um imperialist tendency of uh, a very powerful post-world war ii united states uh dictating biomedical ideas so anyway um 
there are great examples of, say, the um, the British gin craze in the earlier 18th century, and then later in the American Revolutionary period, of uh, medical thinkers starting to think quite carefully about habitual uh, drunkenness as a medical problem, as a, a condition, as a status that endures in a way that is um, worthy of medical care and concern. Uh, but many of those writers, I think, were more um, flexible and integrative in the sense that they didn't they didn't insist that medicine was the only way or the best way or the fundamental way to understand uh, habitual drunkenness. And I, I think in some ways, the, the sort of original sin of a lot of these um, more misguided recent efforts to uh, contain addiction is to essentialize it in a way to to try to put addiction out as if it were some sort of permanent unchanging essence that all people with addiction are alike in the same way that its causes are neatly located in reductionist biology and that's something that happens much later i mean that that most of that happens in the 20th century so regarding alcoholism um you know, before the 20th century, there was not that much of a sense of a division between we didn't have alcoholism and also addiction. Uh, uh, there was a, a really um, energetic and lively and interesting late 19th century American inebriety movement, a group of doctors who were quite interested in understanding all of the problems of addiction. And they didn't make such stark divisions between different substances or even between substances and behaviors like eating or gambling or sex. Uh, but then in, in, in large part influenced by um, what some scholars have called addiction supply industries, uh, the, a big story of the 20th century was the, the artificial dis- division between alcohol and tobacco on one hand and so-called other drugs on the other hand. And so but one of the major legacies of that is that we today think about alcoholism as if it's different in some essential way, which I, I think is, has led to a lot of problems, even just very basic concrete problems in the way we uh, construct our treatment systems. Yeah. And uh, it's interesting that you say that because there is this move uh, that's, that's well explored in the book between sort of um, suggesting that it is a problem with character, that with um, will and sort of commitment. I mean, in uh, from, from my own personal knowledge, we see it with uh, the sort of the temperance movement. Uh, it's big in the UK and groups like the Salvation Army and the Methodists are very big in that. Um, but then, uh, and I mean, probably one of the most famous um, sort of uh, addiction linked organizations is obviously Alcoholics Anonymous. And they come up with this idea that actually um, it's not about yourself, is it? It's about something else. Yeah, I think Alcoholics Anonymous is, uh, does a really beautiful job of embracing some of the paradoxes around addiction. Uh, so um, for people who are not familiar with Alcoholics Anonymous, it arose in, say, the 1930s, 1940s United States. And part of the core of the program is is not just meetings. It's also a, a series of steps, the, the eponymous 12 steps of the 12-step programs. And uh um, th- there's a first step that says that uh, people are powerless. And then the second and third step, uh, mm-hmm. sort of paradoxically, it says that one has to turn it over to a higher power. Uh, now, Alcoholics Anonymous is, has been represented as a fully secular organization, as a spiritual organization, as a religion unto itself. And 
Um, you know, I think it's it's a really fascinating uh, sort of example of a basically anarchic decentralized organization where um, uh, there's tremendous variability among its practitioners. Uh, so uh, one of the ways that they embrace one of the paradoxes around addiction is this this sort of insistence on personal responsibility on one hand, while also uh, insisting on this sort of surrender and acceptance that um, it seems in opposition. It's, it's essentially a spiritual notion that how, how can you um, how can you focus so much on personal effort uh, and also uh, speak so centrally about powerlessness and um, the need for outside salvation. So, um, I, you know, I think Alcoholics Anonymous as a as a sort of um, intellectual and religious and also quasi therapeutic mutual help development is a really interesting amalgam of uh, the medical, the psychological, the spiritual, and also a sort of like early secular humanist approach to um, recovery and, and service as well. So, um, you know, there's a lot more we could say about that, but just to say, I, 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 you could probably tell that I, I'm, I'm a big fan of AA, you know, like in some ways it saved my life. Uh, I was mandated to a 12 step, uh, based rehab program in my own life. And also I saw a lot of problems in the contemporary treatment system, uh, which are also related to the way people have understood AA, that um, in, in many ways, the subsequent developments around advocacy and the, the way people advocated for certain types of addiction treatments resulted in a, a very harmful one-size-fits-all model, which has really done a tremendous disservice. And again, in, in connections to the criminal legal system, uh, ha- has led to massive and uh, powerful systems of control uh, that... Um, really deserve a lot of undoing today um and it was it was in the the section about uh aa that you uh you start to unpick some of the gender issues as well because um especially with alcohol uh there's a very big divide between how um alcoholism um is viewed um when uh when when when, um should i say um attached to a woman or um, attached to a man, um, and there's this, and there's there's, a, there's an extra level of moral judgment which goes beyond the class, right? Absolutely. Oh, it's so. I mean, the the gender issues in the history of addiction are so fascinating because it goes back ages and intersects with ideas about uh, fatalism and motherhood and genetics. I mean, some of the earlier examples go back to the gin craze in, again, in you know, 1720, 1730, 1740 in Britain, um, where a big part of the moral panic around gin uh, was not just that gin was more available and that gin was more available to a poor and rapidly expanding urban underclass, but also that women were significantly involved in not just gin consumption, but gin trade that um, poor, unattached women were pushing around gin carts through London. And uh, that was seen as uh, evidence of depravity and the um, the corrupting power of gin. And then we see ideas about gender again in the, in the 19th century degeneration theory and uh, early ideas about um, evolution, the, these notions that women who drank during pregnancy would sort of pickle their babies and cause a, um, 
a, a sort of future class of a bio underclass that <laughs> people would be somehow ruined and uh, their their children would be fated to um, vice essentially. And it, it's just remarkable how these messages about gender um, echo and echo across time. Certainly in AA and in the 1940s, 1950s US, there were a lot of really stigmatizing and misogynistic ideas about women drinkers, uh, but also in the crack epidemic in the 1980s. The, the story of so-called crack babies and crack mothers was so powerful and um, uh, was really based on shoddy science, or at least very provisional science that was taken up to be much more firm than it actually was. Um, and it really was, at the time, I think well-meaning people, well-meaning scientists at least, were trying to raise the alarm about the potential dangers of crack, which did have, I mean, there was a moral panic around crack, but there were also real harms from crack as well. Um, but these well-meaning people in the process were, um, without realizing, or replicating these stories about um, uh, female drug use over time. Uh, so, you know, that's a, that's another big theme of the book is, um, uh, especially for me as a medical professional and a researcher, to see all the ways that scientists seemingly unwittingly um, just pick up and um, uh, replicate and sort of like retrofit the prevailing social norms onto supposedly objective, uh, uh, scientific, uh, scientific conclusions, I think is just a really important message for anybody who's engaged in science and technology studies. And it's probably obvious for people who are familiar with history, but, uh, um, I think my profession sometimes doesn't do that great a job of it. Yeah. Um, I think what was also interesting is First of all, from this, shall we say, um, backseat or maligned role, uh, we also see women taking a lead um, in a lot of uh, addiction, um, uh, either combating or um, discussion or, uh, or, or just general uh, awareness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the, the best example there is Marty Mann. This, this woman I thought was tremendously fascinating. Uh, a a mid-century alcoholism advocate who was one of the early participants in AA, was uh, one of the first uh, uh, people in LA in AA who were LGBTQ, um, uh, and she was, uh, you know, fascinatingly a, a closeted lesbian, Republican, wealthy, socialite advertising maven who um, is largely forgotten today in, in no small part because people um, sort of valorize Bill Wilson and Bob Smith, the, the male founders of AA. But Marty Mann played this really fascinating role in, in a way that is contiguous with the um, uh, the role of women in earlier prohibition and temperance movements. Uh, but by, by um, coming forward and talking not so much about the problems of the home, but in her case, talking about her own struggles with alcoholism was, it was a tremendously powerful advocate for, um, uh, remediating a big, big problem, which is its own topic. The medical profession's essential abandonment of people with addiction in the earlier part of the 20th century at the time that Alcoholics Anonymous and Marty Mann were around, it was very difficult for even people, even wealthy, well-connected people with alcohol problems had a lot of trouble getting treatment to say nothing of people with opioid addictions and 
other addictive problems. So um, she did a tremendous, tremendous job of uh, raising awareness and uh, of um, forcing open the doors of hospitals and arguing for insurance coverage. Uh, and um, there's certainly something gendered in that too, that her position as a woman allowed her to speak with some uh, authority and ability around that. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. When we think about uh, these two racial examples, and these are ones that stood out to me, um, I'm not sure how familiar people are with um, the long-lasting uh, effects of uh, this sort of stigmatization, especially when it's based upon uh, race, uh, which then links into this idea of good drugs, bad drugs. I mean, uh, the, 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 there are two examples uh, of, of opioids and of cocaine that do have this seemingly um, race and class-driven binary of acceptability and, uh, shall we say, depravity or immorality. Um, so, and, and this is something that the book covers. So I was wondering if you could uh, talk, talk a little bit more about this, because, I mean, this is something that I found fascinating. I'm sure I read as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and taking those in reverse order, uh, I think more people comparatively are familiar with the, the history at the turn of the 20th century when fears about black people in the United States and fears about supposed black violence and uh, this uh, almost, um, almost again, paradoxical idea that both simultaneously black people were more vulnerable to the effects of drugs, but also that they, they got more strength from, from drugs, particularly cocaine led to really repressive uh, criminal justice policies around uh drugs and around addiction and uh uh that that in many ways uh, formed the stereotype of the depraved and violent and unreliable and irredeemable drug user that has remained institutionalized in much criminal justice policy and it's really extremely important um and and i think many even academic uh, histories, at least in my own field, and if you read a psychiatry journal that makes a reference to drug history, it, it often starts around that time. Not without, not without reason. I mean, it, it might date the um, the arc of uh, drug policy to say the 1910s, 1920s, where the Harrison Act started, and frames it almost as if it were the Dark Ages, uh, and then only later in mid 20th century. Uh, enlightened medical actors came around and uh, informed the world that, no, we could think of this as also a medical problem and brought more compassion. And that, that's sort of a funny framing, actually, yeah, probably just because most physicians and um, people focused on con- the contemporary period don't look back to the 19th century. But um, that, that first example you brought up of uh, the introduction of opium and opioids to the United States is so fascinating because um, we could even go back to Thomas De Quincey and the English Romantics, who uh, 
of course, famously had this luxurious recreational use and subsequent problems uh, with opium. And then the United States in the earlier to mid part of the 19th century was quite arrogant. Surprise, surprise. (laughs) The United States was arrogant about their position in the world. But they said, we probably won't have those types of problems that uh, Thomas De Quincey and Samuel Taylor Coleridge had, and we will pursue these drugs in the, uh, a more scientifically rationalist way. There was a, a massive enthusiasm for synthetics. This was the time that, or not synthetics, excuse me, a lot of enthusiasm um, for purified drugs that uh, um this is the time that morphine was isolated and there were advances in the way that people processed and transported cocaine uh, such that a new wave of supposedly modern drugs were able to be marketed to the American consumer. So uh, morphine and other opium products were um, considered a very good drug, a white drug, a a drug that was... um, uh, rational and modern and pure, and simultaneously, in in the wake of a massive Chinese uh, migration to the United States, in part instituted by um, uh, military actions of the Opium Wars, which are, are traceable back to British and uh, American imperialist economic ambitions. Uh, uh, so many Chinese migrants were flooding into the West Coast of the United States uh, that it prompted this this vicious xenophobic backlash, um, which uh, in many places centered quite strongly around opioids that um, smoked opium, for example, which was predominantly used by Chinese people, was considered worse and more addictive and more harmful than, say, for example, injected morphine. When injected morphine is, despite the fact that it's predominantly used by uh, white and comparatively wealthier folks around that time, um, is much more powerful in terms of uh, producing physiological and psychic effects. So uh, we we see this um, progression of uh, powerful laws uh, aimed not so much at addiction, but at particular types of drug users. So the the first federal legislation about uh, opium exclusion was specifically targeting smoked opium, uh, targeting the type of opium use that was associated with uh, Chinese immigrants. So around that time, uh, and there are other um, racist and xenophobic elements we could talk about here too, but uh, just to keep it short, there there is um, this Western obsession with Chinese opium smoking uh, in the South, in particular, this this deep, deep concern about uh, uh, black people and cocaine use. And then in the East, a, a bit later, as there is this massive urbanization and uh, European immigration, uh, the, the, the use of um, illicit opioids and then later heroin uh, became associated with the urban poor in the larger cities of the East. And so the country was almost hemmed in by all of these uh, like frightful and um, panicked ideas about the wrong sorts of drugs and the wrong sorts of drug users. And one of the important um, conclusions and themes throughout the whole book is the way that that, um, that panic, those series of panics, and, and the way that they led to harsh prohibition 
and criminalization of drug use eventually redounded to hurt everyone. That it, it massively undercut uh, the um, otherwise compassionate efforts to bring addiction treatment and treatment of drug problems to to everyone. And so even though uh, people tried to maintain this sort of two-tiered system where white upper-class users uh, still maintained access to, to treatment, it, it all essentially fell apart such that, like what we were talking about before, by the time Alcoholics Anonymous rolls around in the 1930s, 1940s, even the most wealthy and well-connected people couldn't couldn't access quality treatment. Yeah, uh, and 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 this race and class element plays through again. Um, the uh, as well as the compassion element uh, uh, in in the book, you start to talk about um, uh, how a number of figures have uh, clearly influenced this, and uh, one of the, some of the figures that stood out were the, were those that were involved in early uh, methadone treatment, and, and 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 how and how that worked, um, and obviously that pans out in a very class and race based way. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'll give a shout out actually, because just yesterday there was a post on this great blog called um, Points, which is uh, the Society of the History of Alcohol and Drugs. Um, their blog. I'm sure it's an acronym, but I don't remember what it is. But Emily Dufton, who's a drug historian, wrote a bit more about methadone. And um, there's some great specialized literature about methadone and the early days of methadone. Um, and that's sort of one of the meta stories about the book, Thomas, actually, is that, uh, you know, when I started exploring the history of drugs and the history of addiction, there's so much great specialized literature, but it tends to focus on such a narrow slice of life. And, you know, many of those works are beautifully written and really lovely. But what I was looking for was a way of uh, connecting some of these themes overall. Um, So about methadone, uh, you know, methadone for me in the United States growing up in New Jersey and New York is associated with these dingy and uh, sort of again, vice districts. <laughs> you know, it's the, the sort of 21st century version of a vice district where uh, I, I picture a methadone clinic and I picture something that looks like a fortress with people lined up early and lots of street dealing um, around the vicinity and people who are not like really in strong recovery around it. That's a stereotype. Uh, and um, that's a stereotype that has caused immense amounts of stigma against medications for addiction treatment. Which is a massive tragedy because we're living through a historic crisis of overdoses every day. And I mean, not even because of my time in recovery, but uh, just my personal life as as a person who grew up in the United States in the 80s, 90s, 2000s. um, Stories of people who have horrific opioid problems and overdoses and deaths and there's so much we could be doing to remediate that crisis if we could overcome some of the stigma that's associated with these medications. Uh, so, you know, methadone in the outset uh, was a really serendipitous discovery, like a lot of medical scientific discoveries are, um, where um, basically a metabolic researcher who was <laughs> not studying drugs at all and uh, a psychotherapist came together, uh, Dolan Nicewander, uh, and um, 
we're we're just initially trying to understand how different drugs worked and it happened upon methadone, which has such a long method of action uh, that um, it, it stabilized people and took away their cravings and allowed them to be protected against overdoses and live productive lives. And uh, one of the big surprises of the book was that uh, in the rehabilitative 60s into the even into the Nixon years, there is this sort of bipartisan curiosity about the use of methadone, that um, maybe we could enact methadone in medical settings in a sort of holistic manner, meaning uh, it's not just about providing a drug, but also about providing really strong social services and vocational services and helping to support people in their own goals and giving a, a sort of warm and therapeutic locus for community and for care. Uh, and th- there's even one scholar who called Nixon the first therapeutic president because he did such a great job of supporting some of these drug treatment uh, efforts. And of course, there is this sort of double talk because there's also really, really harsh racist rhetoric coming out of the Nixon administration, which ultimately um, undercut some of these efforts. And methadone became more of a tool of crime control. Its fundamental justification was supposedly normalizing people uh, and um, disciplining them to to the way that... Uh, authorities wanted them to be rather than meeting them in a a compassionate therapeutic way and supporting them in their own goals. And so a series of quite harsh and restrictive and counterproductive regulations led to the methadone system that we have today in the United States. And I had the experience that a lot of physicians have in the United States where um, many other countries are, are much more flexible with methadone. You know, but in the United States, people have to come every single day and they come in the morning and there are these really restrictive programs. And, you know, there's certainly ways that um, methadone programs have problems in in other countries as well. But uh, there's a particularly American legacy of racism and prohibitionism that has that has impacted medicine, that uh, impacted methadone specifically, that once again is a cautionary tale about how... um, when these efforts and these holistic and therapeutic efforts become corrupted by these broader agendas, uh, it undercuts the whole system and uh, redounds to hurt everyone. So uh, another takeaway I had about this as well is this, um, the way that um, the, the sort of, uh, the, the, um, the understanding of the, of self-control plays a role because I mean, uh, when you were talking about the sixties and seventies, the United States, obviously, um, as many people will be familiar with, there is this influx of heroin, uh, especially with, uh, Vietnam veterans. Um, and what was really surprising to me was, um, first of all, the scale of it. Um, I mean, obviously as someone that is not from the United States, but has an understanding of, um, a, a, a surface understanding of the history i was aware of it but i wasn't aware of the scale um but there's another element that uh, i'll leave it to you to uh, talk about that was really surprising ah right yeah uh yeah so you know another element of um the nixon era efforts to uh respond to addiction and drug problems was the, this uh this panic ah <laughs> One second. Let me just deal with this. Mm, yeah. Well, let me put it this way: that you know, Nixon had an issue with drugs uh, even in the early days of his presidency, but it really intensified as the morass in Vietnam progressed, and 
uh, by a certain point, there is a, a massive, massive uh, wave of heroin use among servicemen in Vietnam. And uh, it, it's a really fascinating window into the way that people have understood different drug problems. Because I'll tell you, people across the political and ideological spectrums have interpreted this phenomenon in such divergent ways. <laughs> and it's it's a great object lesson in being very careful and humble about how we interpret these types of phenomena and these types of natural experiments. Um, because the natural experiment that came out of this experience was um, as servicemen returned from Vietnam after having uh, been using heroin, sometimes in massive quantities, there was a, a huge panic that um, they would say, oh, motherfucker. <laughs> so uh, the experience of heroin in Vietnam was such a fascinating phenomenon and fascinating natural experiment. Uh, there was a massive problem of heroin use among American servicemen in Vietnam, which I should mention was in part uh, a function of the way that um, American imperialist military ambitions destabilized the region and actually promoted uh, the trade in in heroin but not to mention just the generally miserable conditions that uh, prompted people to alleviate their suffering with drugs but so there was a there was a moral panic back stateside that um american servicemen who were supposedly hooked on heroin would would come back and infect their local communities that they would somehow um not not only come back and be a social problem, but that they would be the locus of a spread of a sort of unstoppable heroin addiction. And um, so part of the, um, not Nixon himself, but some of the, the policies that Nixon put in place, like the uh, a special office uh, for uh, drug abuse prevention, um, actually gave a fair amount of latitude to some forward-thinking uh, scientists and physicians and policymakers who decided to study this problem. Um, to study what would actually happen when people who had a significant heroin use history came back to the United States. And I should also say that um, it's a fascinating window into uh, the way people understand and spin drug problems because across the ideological spectrum and across the political spectrums, people have used this example in all variety of ways. Um, so many competing and contradictory interpretations of the, this natural experiment of Vietnam returnees. Uh, but the, you know, the upshot is that there was a psychiatric epidemiologist named Lee Robbins at the uh, Washington University in St. Louis, which is a for folks who don't know, a really fascinating epicenter of a, a biological and sort of rationalist and empirical study of mental disorders, especially around that time in the 1970s. So Lee Robbins was tasked with uh, studying the natural history of uh, people with heroin problems around that time. And um, the, the the shocking thing that they found, which is uh, related to other uh scientific results in different fields, including alcoholism research, was that a massive number of people seem to get better on their own without any treatment even. That uh, people um, without any sort of meaningful engagement in uh, treatment services or otherwise just simply stopped their use when they came back to the United States. And, uh, you know, again, I want to I be really careful and clear here because... I think especially for your audience, they would probably be interested in some of the nuance. I mean, there were, there were funny ways about um, 
the ways that Robbins and her team classified addiction. It was a very um, biologically based description of uh, habituation and withdrawal, which, you know, nowadays I think most people would say is not the sine qua non of addiction, that it probably involves something you know, beyond just being uh, tolerant on a substance, although there is that legacy of confusing physiological dependence with addiction. Um, and also, uh, there were some contingencies in place where, um, you know, the, the returning um, veterans, uh, you know, had strong incentives to not use because if they, uh, if they, um, if they tested positive on the return, then they would have to be mandated to like a certain like drying out detox time. But, you know, the upshot is that, uh, that study plus other studies cast doubt on what was at the time, the reigning model of addiction, which said that once you were hooked, you're an addict for life. That once an addict, always an addict in the words of uh, the writer, William Burroughs. And that in particular, that the, these more dangerous drugs, supposedly more dangerous drugs like heroin um, and in some ways actually more dangerous drugs um, caused a sort of uh, irreversible, uncontrollable addiction. And um, findings like that sent shockwaves through the treatment industries and through the scientific discussions of um, addiction as a disease. And, you know, to this day, it's a really charged and polarizing topic. Um, the, the, what is the actual nature of addiction? In many ways, that's the, the set of questions that, that set me on the, the study of these topics in the first place is, um, what do we actually know about addiction? The, the sort of governing model that it's permanent and unchanging and all addicts are alike in the same ways, uh, that these, um, are, are, are once like very deeply held in our folk psychology. And also there are these seemingly contradictory uh, scientific pieces of evidence and how do we reconcile them? And so if, if there are these contradictions then what is addiction anyway? Um, so I, you know, a really fascinating and interesting time period because uh, in some ways nothing has changed in the public discourse. You know, we're still having similar fights about uh, addiction. And I think one piece of the, um, one piece of the solution would be to pause and be more humble about what we think addiction is and uh, to, to let go of really firmly fixed views about um, addiction as an essential condition that exists almost as if it's an, its own natural kind. Yeah, and I mean, this brings me to the sort of the, the final point, and uh, and it's one of the final points of the book, is you explore this, uh, all the various models of rehabilitation and all like the zero tolerance approaches and how this is taken societally. And I mean, you've touched on this with regards to methadone and you touched on this just now with regards to um, how, uh, how, how the veterans were treated as well or, or, or their incentives. Um, and I think, I suppose this is an, an area that, and it's another sort of taken for granted area, right? People assume that, rehabilitation is a one-size-fits-all model um, and actually it, it is a product, like everything, um, of socioeconomic, socio-political, legal uh, and um, sometimes like religious or moralistic uh, viewpoints that have shaped what rehabilitation uh, has, has, has taken the form of. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, 
And there, there are even examples that I describe in the history of people who were very committed to alcoholism advocacy around the mid-century, who then became really cautious and even outright fearful of the direction, the ideological direction uh, some of the treatment industry was taking. So Harold Hughes was a former senator at one time uh, considered a likely presidential candidate who was a person in recovery. He was um, uh, sort of like a former truck driver who had really bad problems with alcohol and then found recovery through AA and was instrumental in a lot of the um, Kennedy and Johnson and Nixon era alcoholism legislation in the United States. Uh, and also instrumental in the way that um, treatment systems were set up. And um, in many ways, this was a positive development that there was there was a great deal of access being provided that wasn't being provided before to people who had alcohol problems and who were looking for some sort of therapy or medical help. Uh, and um, he eventually himself came to call it a treatment industrial complex because he saw how concentrated power and profit motive or even just prestige and status uh, created a sort of ideological rigidity within the field. And that's indeed what happened that um, in part because of the vacuum of medicine that we described before, in part because medicine had in many ways abandoned the treatment of addiction earlier in the 20th century, um, the treatment industrial complex uh, sort of um, ossified into a one size fits all model that said uh, Alcoholics Anonymous is the only way to the point where in the 1980s, when there was this huge craze for recovery, in part in the wake of um, former First Lady Betty Ford coming forth and talking about her own experience in recovery, uh, in, in the wake of this huge craze for recovery, there are quotes of uh, directors of rehab saying, I can tell you one thing, if you, go to Al- if you don't go to Alcoholics Anonymous after you leave it, you leave this place, you won't make it. And um, it's just a preposterous notion. I mean, we, we've known for years and we certainly know today uh, that um, there are many pathways to recovery. And um, the, it's really great that I, I would say even within the last five years in the, in the medical and the policy world, there's much more receptiveness to this notion of multiple pathways of recovery. Uh, and it's, it's a little bit depressing because we've, we've had good, good science about this since at least the 1980s. And, um, in, you know, in some ways we could, could intuit it or at least give a sort of more pluralistic model a try in the 1970s. So they, you know, that's just one example of, um, of many in the book of, uh, the way, uh, hubristically and arrogantly thinking about, um, the proper way to recover has, has, um, not really served as well. I mean, I think that's a really, uh, great way to sort of be tying things up as well, because it is this, um, like much of the book, this sort of genus like approach of looking to the past and to the future. Um, and, um, and usually for, I think, a, a historically focused book, there is this element of hope and uh, an open-mindedness um, with, with, with a lack of prescription uh, for solutions, just a, a, a sort of exhortation to um, not be narrow-minded about these things. Um, so yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm sure that the, the listeners will be, um, from their various fields, will all find very different things um, to take away from the book, because I know I did. Um, so with that in mind, uh, and, the, and the book recently published, I was uh, I thought it was worth asking, uh, have you got anything else uh, planned for the near future? Uh, well, y- yes and no. Um, uh, you know, COVID 
uh, it was a bit of a struggle <laughs> with a six-year-old, and um, I, I, I'm not putting a lot of pressure on myself to jump right into another enormous project because this one took me ten years, and especially bringing it to a close during the pandemic was just uh, was just rough. <laughs> And so I, um, I, I don't want to have some sort of preconceived idea about like what the next thing is, but I've, I'm in Portugal right now. I'm in Lisbon, Portugal. And, um, uh, part of that is personal, but then part of that is also uh, professional in that, uh, Portugal, as a lot of folks will know, uh, is a sort of, uh, test case for uh, really interesting drug policy that they ha- have done a really interesting, um, uh, a set of um, reforms around decriminalization to address their own drug problems, uh, going back 20 years, going back to 2001, um, where they decriminalized all drugs for personal use. And uh, that's another, you know, it's it's funny that we're talking about this because um, just like the example of uh, servicemen returning from Vietnam, uh People have used the the Portuguese experience in a variety of ways across the ideological spectrum, and so um, some advocates say this means that we should absolutely decriminalize everything right away because the Portuguese have been very successful. And then um, uh, at the other end of the ideological spectrum, people attribute it to um, some of Portugal's criminal justice policies and its social conservatism, um, and say that it could never work in the United States or elsewhere. Uh, so, you know, I had the sense in part, um, inspired and stemming out of my work on writing this, this book, the, that the, the social and cultural and historical roots of the Portuguese experience with drugs, um, was really important and often overlooked that, uh, we have to, so one of the things I'm exploring right now is how is it that, um, you know, the Portuguese experience with living under a dictatorship for a good portion of the 20th century affects the drug crisis. Uh, how did their experience with the retornados, which was this this phenomenon of um, people in the formal colonies returning in massive numbers and causing a lot of urban uh, strife and stress in the 1970s? How did that play into the whole situation? And um, uh, certainly social and, and cultural legacies going back far beyond then. So I, you know, I'm just really curious about the, the broader synthetic and um, interdisciplinary looks at uh, issues like this that uh, tend to be studied in isolation. So, you know, I don't know if it'll be a book or just an article or what, but I, I'm curious to learn about it. I mean, that sounds fascinating. Uh, and I'm sure, as I say, our readers and listeners um, will be, very interested in uh, keeping track of uh, the developments with that. So on that note, I would like to thank you uh, for appearing today on the New Books Network. And just a reminder that this book, uh, that, that Dr. Carla Fisher's book is The Urge, Our History of Addiction, and it's out now on Penguin Press. Uh, so thank you very much. Thanks a lot, Thomas. Great talking with you.